Take out your Bible, open to John's Gospel, chapter 3 once again. John chapter 3 this morning, as we continue working through this most important of passages in John's Gospel. Again, back when we first began looking at the end of John chapter 2 into John chapter 3, we talked about probably most of us are familiar with the story of Nicodemus. But of grave importance is, have we understood the gravity of Jesus' words to Nicodemus? I echo to you the words of J.C. Ryle just to, to stimulate our hearts and minds and, and prayerful, a prayerful plea to God to give us ears to hear this morning. Ryle says about the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Maybe you've never thought of it this way, but listen to what Ryle says. The conversation between Christ and Nicodemus is one of the most important passages in the whole Bible. You ever given it that kind of weight, that kind of attention? Nowhere else do we find stronger statements about those two mighty subjects, the new birth and salvation by faith in the Son of God. And then he says this, the servant of Christ will do well to make himself thoroughly acquainted with this chapter. A man may be ignorant of many things in religion and still be saved, but to be ignorant of the matters handled in this chapter is to be in the broad way which leads to destruction. And again, I echo, we've said this every week, we're not saved by knowledge. You don't have to know a bunch of things to be a Christian, but you do have to know certain foundational, fundamental things and Jesus' words to Nicodemus fall into that category. These words you must know to be a true believer. Let's look again at the text. John chapter 3. We'll read the entirety of verses 1 through 15. But I want to start with John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Because that's really the introduction to what we're reading and looking at right now. John chapter 2, verse 23 through 25. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, that's Jesus, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Let's stop there. You read that and what do you think? Amen. Praise the Lord. Many are believing. Wait just a minute. Verse 24. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Wait a minute. They, 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 they're following Jesus. And Jesus does not save them. It's not a saving faith. Why? What does the text say? Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. What do we read there? This is so important for chapter 3. Just because you say you follow Jesus doesn't mean Jesus has entrusted himself to you savingly. And you think, how can that be? What's going on? Exhibit A. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, 
he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. For the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, this is interesting. Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you don't understand what I'm saying? You don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we do come to you this morning, and we plead, we are desperate. We need your help. Lord, the things we're looking at in this passage are so weighty. Not that they're hard for us. For many of us, they're foreign to us. They undermine so much of what we've built our own religious lives upon, our hope of placement in the kingdom of God. For many of us, we're just like Nicodemus. And Jesus absolutely cuts Nicodemus's spiritual legs out from underneath him. He has nothing to stand on. And so it might be with many of us this morning. As Paul says, the natural man can't understand these things, God. It takes spiritual eyes and ears. And that's not something we can put on. That's something you must give us. And with the gravity of what's at stake in this chapter, the kingdom of God, salvation, eternal salvation, we pray that you would give us this morning spiritual eyes and ears. Help us to see, help us to hear, help us to think. Lord, we're battling the flesh this morning. We're battling years, maybe decades, of an unbiblical understanding of the gospel. And we need your help. Would you meet with us today? Would you show us your gospel, accomplished through your Son, by your Holy Spirit, the work of God in the soul of man, that we ourselves might have a right understanding of, Lord, our heart before you, and that by your grace, grace, we might respond appropriately this day. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, looking back probably four weeks ago, we began looking at this section that we're in, in John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, Jesus' staggering statement. Many believed in Jesus, and if you still have not wrestled with this, you've got to start here. Many were believing in Jesus because of the miracles he was doing, and what? Jesus did not entrust himself to them savingly. Why? Because he knew it was in their hearts. He knew that their belief in him was very selfish. It was about his miracles. It was about his powers, about what he could do, what he might be able to do for them selfishly. 
And the gospel is not about our glory. It's about his glory. And so verses 23 through 25, many are believing. Our hearts want to say, amen, praise the Lord. Don't, because Jesus doesn't. Jesus says, I don't save you. I don't entrust myself to you because I know what's in your heart. Your interest is not me. Your interest is yourself. And to give us another example of this, here comes Nicodemus. We began this John chapter 3 series we're in by looking at the necessity of the new birth. The necessity of being born from above. Here we have Nicodemus, a religious leader, a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, somebody with all the religious credentials. He was a Jew. He knew the law. He was a teacher of the law. He comes to Jesus, and in those opening verses 1 through 3, he's saying all the right things. Jesus, we know who you are. There's a profession of faith there. There's a profession of external faith. We're starting to get some clarity on that. There's a profession. Well, the things that you do, only God could do. We know you're the Messiah. You could check all the boxes of Nicodemus' statement in verses 1 through 3. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. If you have a friend or family member that you're concerned about their salvation, if you heard them say to you, well, here's what I believe, and they use Nicodemus' words, I I guarantee you most of us would say, thank goodness. We're on the same page. That's what I believe as well. As though saying the right things about Jesus is the fruit of salvation. To this one who said all the right things, who had all this religious standing, if you will, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless you, religious man, Jewish man, teacher of the law, who has just said nothing but right things about me, unless you are born again, the Greek, born from above, born from God, you cannot see the kingdom of God. This Nicodemus is one that Jesus was just talking about. Many people were believing in Jesus, yet Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew it was in their hearts. Externally, Nicodemus checked all the boxes. Religious, spiritual, externally, knower of the law, says right things about Jesus. But we have said for as long as I can remember, The work of the gospel is not about reforming our external. It's not an outside thing. It's an inside-out thing. It's a change of the heart thing, not a change of our behavior thing, fundamentally. And we saw very early on what's true of Nicodemus is true for us. our hope is in our profession of faith, if our hope is, well, I I say and believe, I believe from my heart, right, things about Jesus. That is no key into the kingdom of God. Zero. Look at me up here. I've done this every week. I want you to see zero, nothing. Right thinking about Jesus is a glorious thing, but it has nothing to do with your place in the kingdom of God. Zero. Another example than Nicodemus, how about Satan himself, who has right theology about Jesus. He knows Jesus better than we know Jesus. And yet, Christ knows what's in his heart as well. So, the necessity of being born from above. 
born from God. And then last week we began looking at part two of this, the impossibility of being born again by your own efforts. The impossibility of being born again by your own efforts. And we began looking in verse four. We didn't finish that message. With God's help, we're going to try to finish it this morning. But these things are far too important for us to rush through. We began looking last week at four reasons from the text that it is impossible for you and I or anyone to be born again through anything we do. The first thing we looked at last week, and we spent the bulk of our time here, number one, because faith is a gift that only God can give. Faith, right? We talk about we're saved by faith. Well, that's not entirely true. Stay with me for just a minute. We are saved by faith, but what Paul says in Ephesians 2 is we're saved by what? Grace. And that grace gives us what? Faith. You're saved by grace through faith. Not you're saved by faith. If that were the case, then faith is something you can do. But faith is not something we can produce. You're saved by grace, and that grace gives you faith. And just to make sure he's clear, Paul goes on to say this, you're saved by grace through faith, and that faith, that grace, not of yourselves. It is the work of God. Not of works, so that what? No one can boast. No one like Nicodemus, no one like can, can stand and, and try to declare their place in the kingdom of God based upon what they've done. You're saved by grace through faith. Meaning what? There is no faith apart from grace. It is a grace of God to gift to anybody faith. Because if he doesn't gift it, no one possesses faith. Why? What did we read at the beginning of the service? Ephesians chapter 2. Because we're all dead in trespasses and sin. What can a dead person produce? Nothing. You're a toe tag. A dead person can't do anything. That's what we are spiritually. And if faith is demonstrated, it is a gift of God into that darkened soul. When Nicodemus comes to Jesus and Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus completely misunderstands. What's his reaction in verse 4? Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Right? It's kind of like, I mean, I get why he responds that way. Because he misunderstands what Jesus said. Jesus says, you must be born again. To which Nicodemus says, I don't get it. I mean, here I'm a grown man. How am I going to go back in my mother's womb again? Jesus is not a poor communicator. He didn't pick a poor illustration. What did we just read about in verses 24 and 25? Jesus, chapter 2. Jesus knows what's in the hearts of man. He has used this because he's trying to draw out for Nicodemus what Jesus already knows is in his heart. And what is in his heart? Well, remember we talked about last week, there are diagnostic questions we can ask to find out what's in our own heart. The faith that we have, is it an external faith, a, a man-made faith, or is it a, a, a faith that comes from God? And the question is, one of the diagnostic questions is, 
How do you know you're born again? Or we can put it in a statement, persuade me, persuade me you're a court Christian. And those of you who were with us last week, you've probably already, you already, ah, I'm not going to make the same mistake I did last time, and that's good. But for those of you who weren't here, if I ask you, persuade me you're a Christian, you're going to answer one of two ways. And it's good. this diagnostic question is going to reveal your understanding of faith. Persuade me you're born again. You're either going to begin with, well, I did this, or I did that, or I walked the aisle, I got baptized, I joined the church. Or, persuade me you're a Christian. By the grace of God, I've been gifted faith in Jesus Christ that otherwise I wouldn't have. Do you hear the difference? One is man-centered, one is me, I did it. One is I had nothing to do with it, God did it. And when Jesus is using this metaphor of being born again with, with um, Nicodemus, he's, he's, this is a diagnostic statement that he's drawing out for Nicodemus, which one he belongs to. Because when Jesus declares you must be born again, what did he respond with? Did he respond, I, or did he respond, God? He, he responded, me, I. He said, how can I go back into my, what, how can I, what, what am I supposed to do with this, Jesus? Bingo. Nicodemus is exposed. His whole understanding of religion is based on him, his works, his efforts, his religion, his theology. And Jesus exposes that. And so Jesus explains to him to help him to see that salvation, placed in the kingdom of God, is not the works of man. Jesus said, it's completely the work of God. He's going to continue to play that out for us. So number one, why is it impossible to be born again by your own efforts? Number one, because faith is a gift of God, a gift that only he can give. Number two, and this is where we closed out last week, we saw that, that being born again is wholly the work of God. Because only God can cleanse us from sin. Stay with me for just a minute. Only God can cleanse a soul from sin. That's what we see there in verse 5. Truly, truly, Jesus said, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You know, the reason we don't have place in God's kingdom is because of sin. That's the problem. So in order to have, if, if there's ever hope, of an individual having place in the kingdom of God, that sin problem has to be dealt with. That sin problem has to be eradicated, washed away, done away with. And there's nothing you and I can do to wash away our own sin. There's not enough, was it ivory soap, 99.9% pure? Even that's not good enough to wash away our sin against a holy God. Only He, the one who's offended, the one who we've sinned against, only He has the authority and the power to wash away the sin that we've committed against Him. And this He's done through the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ. Christ came and lived the life we were supposed to live. He died the death we deserve to die. And it's through His blood we have forgiveness of sins. But stay with me. Stay with me. 
how does a soul appropriate the blood of Christ to their sin? How does that happen? We've, we've seen already that we're dead in trespasses and sin. What can dead people do? They can't confess their sin. They can't repent. They can't profess faith in Jesus Christ. Those are gifts of God. So how will an individual, if Christ has done everything necessary, how will that individual's sins be cleansed? It is by, what does verse 5 say? Unless you're born of water and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. What's he talking about water there? All throughout the Old Testament, God has been prophesying about a time that he's going to come and do for his people what they couldn't do for themselves. Even after God saved the, uh, his people from their Egyptian bondage, took them to Mount Sinai, he gave them the law, and they said, all that the Lord has said we will do, they didn't do it. They didn't obey. And all throughout the Old Testament, you can trace the people of God. They promise God will be faithful. They're unfaithful. God brings judgment upon them. God promises, uh, they promise we'll do better. God gives grace. They fail God again. God brings judgment. God, they say, we'll do better. It's just over and over. And the story of the Old Testament is this. You can't do it. You can't stop sinning. You've got a sin problem that you can't fix. And that's why Jesus prom or God promises through Jesus all throughout the Old Testament, most clearly in Ezekiel chapter 34, this, the new covenant. I will sprinkle clean water on you. God says, I'm I'll sprinkle clean water and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. Don't rush that. What's he saying there? You can't fix your uncleanness. You can't do it. So I, in kindness, in grace, in mercy, in long-suffering, for my own namesake, for my own glory, I will sprinkle you clean with water. And I will clean you from your uncleanness and from your idols. And he says this. How's he going to do it? I'll give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone. This is the washing of regeneration, the washing of, of the heart with the word of God. I take out that, I will take out and purge out that heart that just cannot be faithful to me, that won't be faithful to me. And I will remove that heart of stone from your flesh. And I, God says, will give you a heart of flesh. I will take out the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I, God says, will put my spirit in you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes, and to obey my rules. Now stop there. Who is the one who brings cleansing for sins? It is God. He's the only one. He's the one who says, I will cleanse you. I will wash you. I will give you a heart. And with that heart, I will cause you to walk faithfully and obediently unto me. And this is why Paul writes in Titus chapter 3, he saved us, not because of works of righteousness we have done, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration. That's, that's the fulfillment of what he promised in Ezekiel, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Those are two things very, very important that we must understand. Why is it impossible for you and I to be born again by our own efforts? Number one, because we can't produce faith. Faith is a gift of God. And number two, you and I can't wash our sins away. We just, there's nothing we can do. Only God can do that through his Holy Spirit, through the 
work of regeneration, the fulfillment of the new covenant upon his soul. Are you with me? Number three. Number three. Being born again is wholly, entirely the work of God because it comes only from his Holy Spirit. Now, we've been teetering on this in, in all the conversation, but here he lays it out. Why is it impossible to be born again through your own efforts? Because salvation comes only from the Holy Spirit. Now, where do we see that in the text? Verse 6. We've not skipped a verse yet. He's laying out these things. Verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Paul's right there. Don't rush it. He's contrasting two things here, isn't he? Flesh and spirit. Jesus is making a point here, something he's already said going back to John chapter 1, verse 13. There he said, but all who did receive him, who believed in his name. How did they believe in his name? Well, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. So they're born again, but it had nothing to do with their flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So here he's just echoing what he's already said. They were born again not because of the will of the flesh. Why? Because that which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit. Take a look at your Bible. Do you see a capital S right there? That which is born of the Holy Spirit is Spirit. The only thing your flesh and my flesh can do is to produce flesh external. Now here... Flesh is talking about our human nature. He's not using flesh the way Paul uses flesh. Paul talks about the flesh, our sin nature. In Johannine literature, John's gospel, his epistles, even in the book of Revelation, when John, by and large, uses the flesh, he's talking about just the human nature. He's saying human beings can only produce human beings. Human beings with bodies can only produce external things. It can only affect external things. A human being cannot produce another human that belongs to the kingdom of God. That's spiritual. A human being can't do anything to bring about spiritual life. The flesh can only produce human stuff, flesh stuff, external stuff, outward stuff. But spiritual stuff, life unto God stuff is produced through the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Again, just to be clear, human nature cannot produce anything spiritual toward God. I would, I would almost have you repeat that with me. It, is, it has to be so clear in our minds, the weakness of the flesh. Human nature, your human nature, my human nature can do nothing to produce anything spiritual Toward God. Zero. Zilch. Again, nothing. The flesh can't produce the new birth. The flesh can't bring about the life of God in the soul of man. These are things only God can do because of the reasons we've already said. We, there's talk today, even in religious circles, of turning over a new leaf, of reforming your ways. That's not the gospel. When we see people turning over a new leaf and, man, they've changed their ways, that is what the 
flesh produces. External. God's birth of a soul creates what Paul says elsewhere is a new creation. The old is gone. It's not we've turned over a leaf and now we're just, we're different than we once were. There's some truth to that, but the work of God, the Holy Spirit upon a soul produces an entirely different person. You got to stay with me here. This is the work of God in the life of the soul. The only thing flesh can produce is external things. And that's where Nicodemus is struggling. Nicodemus equated spirituality, perhaps like some of us, with his upbringing. He's Jewish. He knew the law. He kept the law. He was a member of the Jewish covenant community. He had right thinking about Jesus. But all of those things are what? Outside, externals. And though by most accounts, Nicodemus was very faithful in those external things, what he failed to realize is what the gospel produces in the life of a soul. And probably some of us have missed this. The work of God in the life of a soul is it produces a real, authentic, living, breathing, walking relationship with Jesus Christ. For Nicodemus, he had a belief in God, but God was out there. There was not this real imminent nearness with God. Think back to the book of Genesis. God created us in His image to know Him, to love Him, to worship Him, to walk with Him in the, the cool of the garden like Adam and Eve did, to commune with Him, to fellowship with Him, to be conformed to His likeness. It was the most blessed of all privileges, of all the things that God made. The pinnacle of God's creative genius was creating you and I, male and female, in His image so that we could relate to Him and walk in nearness with Him there in the Garden of Eden like Adam and Eve did. And that most blessed of privileges was lost in the fall. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. They, they lost that relationship with God. God didn't disappear. God in kindness and mercy was still hovering. But they lost that nearness with their God, their creator, their maker, that fellowship, that intimacy, that oneness with him that they were created for. And Nicodemus here is still reeling from the fruit of that. God is still hovering in his mindset somewhere out there, but he has not, does not have that intimacy that humans were created for. Why? He's focused upon externals. And only you can answer this, but I, I have a hunch because I know my own heart. In 16 years of pastoring, I've witnessed it. When you become focused on external things, you will by and large neglect the internal. Just by and large. When you become focused upon your religious duties, your religious activities, having church just so, living the Christian life just so, when you become so focused upon externals, right thinking, right acting, right believing, everything having to be just so, that becomes your idol. That becomes your religious system. 
and you forsake the internal, the inward life. The flesh produces flesh. The flesh can only produce external, and the external becomes all that matters. Stay with me. Is that true in your life? It very well may be that we need the same reminder as Nicodemus. If we're honest, much of what we call Christianity today is not characterized by an inward relationship with the living God in the face of Jesus Christ. If we're honest with ourselves, a life of looking unto Jesus is just foreign to us because we're more preoccupied not with Jesus, but with external religion. Having everything in my religious life just so. Outwardly, the setting has to be just right. The music has to be just right. The preaching has to be just right. The things we do have to be just right. And if it's not, I'm, I'm uncomfortable. You have to confess how little many who staunchly profess to be true believers today have a heart that is held captive by Jesus. And who are men and women, stay with me, stay with me, who are men and women of the word. Yes, you can be externally focused and still have a quiet time. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about an inward soul captivated by the glory of Christ. A hunger and a thirst for Him. A hunger and a thirst and earnestness a passion, a delight, a joy in Him that that comes from nearness to Him, intimacy with Him. So much so that I forget about all the externals. The externals just kind of the overflow of my internal walk with the Lord becomes my, now the external things are just reprioritized, refocused. Christianity can easily drift, as we saw in our study of Revelation, drift from their first love to where now we're busy religiously and externally, but there is no interest in God. There's no real living for His glory. There's no joy in Christ. And worst of all, we don't have a problem with those things. We think it's okay. Maybe we tag a line onto it. I'm I'm in this backslidden state. But by and large, as long as our religious structures are in place, ah, Lord knows nobody's perfect. I'm doing my best. Well, if a person may be spiritually dead like Nicodemus is, and still be like Nicodemus was, active in church, emotionally moved by sermons and songs, loyal to the Bible, sacrificial in their service, faithful in daily Bible reading, zealous about sharing Christ, and still be completely dead. An inward love, devotion, passion, seeking, searching after Jesus daily. Because He's all. Do we, like Nicodemus, like Jesus is pulling out of Nicodemus, focus 
upon the externals and minimize the internals. Let's quiz ourselves for just a moment. It doesn't do us any good to lie. There's too much at stake. How much, even today, have you thought about and been deeply pursuant of intimacy with Christ? From the moment you got up this morning, and believe me, I know how Sunday mornings go in the house getting ready for church. We had one of those mornings this morning. But how even today, how much of the eternal spiritual glory of Christ has been your passion? A great barometer, think back to our prayer time this morning. And the question is not, did you pray out loud? Though we always advocate for that. <laughs> did you drift off? Did you find it hard to set aside 20 minutes? for seeking the face of God in Jesus Christ. But you feel good about the fact, I came to church this morning. Have you taken mental account of what Jesus says, this is who has place in the kingdom of God. Those who are born from above, who've been given new life from above, new passion, born from above, a desire for Jesus Christ. Have you wrestled with, where's my desire for him this morning? John Snyder, in his study, uh, Behold Your God, gives us a helpful list of ways to determine, am I truly focused upon spiritual things, or like Nicodemus, is it only just external religious things? People who love Christ hunger for Christ. People who love religion want to hear sermons about how to fix their problems. Number two, people who love Christ count all things lost because I want Him more than anything. People who love religion, yes, I want Jesus, just like I want other things as well. Number three, people who love Christ look forward to intimacy with Him in the Word constantly, daily? That's a great probing question. How is it between your soul and your Bible? Because this is the place you find Jesus. Jesus reveals to us God, and the Word reveals to us Jesus. And you don't find Jesus through reading John Piper's book on Jesus. R.C. Sproul's book on Jesus, or John Bunyan's book on Jesus, though they can be great helps. How is it between your soul and the Word of God? People who love Christ look forward to time with Him in the Word. People who love religion feel times in the Word are a bore. Number four, people who love Christ come to church to focus prayers, songs, and sermons on Jesus. People who love religion come to church to be entertained and to get what they want out of it. Number five, people who love Jesus inwardly, spiritually, are merciful. 
people who love religion are critical. I'll let you let that one sit there. People who love Christ are interested in Jesus because of who He is. Because they've been given a heart to see the glory, the beauty, the majesty, and that nothing can compare to Him. People who love religion are interested in Jesus to get what they want. People who love Jesus inwardly love to exalt Jesus. People who love religion love for themselves to be recognized and praised. People who love Christ lay down their rights for His glory. People who love religion, it's all about them, their rights. It's got to be my way. Why? Because the flesh produces flesh externally. That's, that's, that's what I've built my understanding of the kingdom upon. Well, if you listen to these things, and this is not a comprehensive list, these are just ways to measure the barometer of our own soul. The work of God in the soul of man is the work of the Holy Spirit that produces a love for Jesus, an inward desire of communion and fellowship and glory and beauty and majesty and captivation with Jesus. What's in your soul? Have you slipped? It might be the reason that which that we have slipped is because that which is born of flesh is flesh. So do we just wallow here this morning? Do we just kind of, well, I mean, this is who I am? No. What does the text say? How, how does one receive this new nature? What does the text say? John chapter 3, verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit, capital S, Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who must do this work in your soul and in mine. The Bible calls this work regeneration, a rebirth, a birth from above, a birth from God, where God takes that which is dead and brings it to life, that which is inclined towards selfishness and, and inclines it toward selflessness unto Christ, that which is inclined to disobedience and rebellion is now inclined to obedience that which was depraved and corrupt is now has a new passion for God. One that was dry towards Christ now has a passion for Him. This is the work of God in the life of the soul through His Holy Spirit. This is what the Spirit produces the Spirit. The Spirit produces the things of God, things that please Him, things that honor God. And the flesh doesn't do that. So you can retire those things. Retire trying to please God in your flesh. The flesh can only produce flesh. If you want to truly please God, you've got to look to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. And beg and plead and pray. There's no shortage of great material out there that helps us to understand, well, what is the work of God through His Holy Spirit in the life of a soul? John MacArthur gives us a few here. This is one of about seven or eight I've, I've looked at through the years. Conditions that give evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit upon your soul. Number one, love for God. Love for God. And MacArthur, time doesn't allow us, is be careful to distinguish this. Everybody today in religious circles says they love God. That's not the measuring stick. 
Love for God is what? A dying to myself and, and forsaking everything else that I would have him and live unto him. And, and, and he's my all. A life of devotion to him, a life of obedience to him. It is the height of hypocrisy to say you love God, yet spend no time with him in his word. You disobey him at every turn. You, you dishonor him in the way that you, you, you break his law. How is your love for God? Do you love God? Do you love him? Him, his nature, his glory, his name, his kingdom, his holiness. Another thing MacArthur says, an evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit upon a soul. The spirit produces spirit. Love for God. Number two, repentance from sin. Out of our love for God, the flip side of that is what? A hatred of the things that God hates. A hatred of everything God hates. And when I see what God hates in me, what do I do? I repent. Now, it's our lips because sin is what? We've departed a person. God in the face of Jesus Christ. We've run away from God. We've forsaken our first love. Repentance is what? It's person-oriented. I return to a person. I return to Christ. Luther says this about repentance, because a lot of times we get this idea that repentance is a, well, I did that once. Or I did it from, you know, in those seasons of life where I was really gone. Luther says, for the Christian, repentance is a way of life. It's the culture, it's the air you breathe. Out of your love for God, every time in that moment, you sense there's something in your life, in your mind, in your heart that's displeasing to the God you love. What do you do? You run back to Him in repentance. You run back to him through the cross of Jesus Christ. It's a way of life. That's what the Spirit produces. The Spirit of truth produces a love for God. And out of the overflow, a hatred of all else, so that when we see sin in our life, how is it between your soul and the grace of repentance? Number three, the Spirit produces spirit, genuine humility. Humility is the enemy of pride. What is pride? Pride is you're battling God for supremacy. That's really what it is. Pride is I got to have it my way. Pride is I want it my way. I'm sovereign. I'm in control. I'm king or I'm queen. And you're battling God for supremacy because God declares he is sovereign. The only person who has rights is God. He's the only one. And by nature, we are all combative towards God. We want what we want, how we want it, when we want it. And man, we're going to make hell on earth for people who, who try to not give me what I want. The work of the Spirit is humility. Have this mind in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, though he was equal with God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He had rights and didn't count them to be grasped, to held on to, but gave himself up in obedience to the Father, faithfulness to the Father's plans and purposes, and lived a life of humility. Another work of the Spirit, devotion to God's glory. This is a whole sermon series in and of itself. Man, the glory of God is such a catchphrase today. 
Everyone talks about it. Do it for the glory of God, for the glory of God. True saving faith gives a passion for God's glory above everything else. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, no matter how mundane it is, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. The direction of the true believer is one for the glory of God. Out of my love for Him. Is that what drives you? Is that anywhere on the radar? Beloved, it's a problem if it's not. If you're not a humble person, if your love for God is just a spoken love, if, if the only time you think about the glory of God is for maybe 10 minutes in the morning and then on Sundays, that is a major problem. The work of the Holy Spirit gives us a soul that's captivated by that. Time doesn't allow us, but... But, uh, not but, <laughs> MacArthur goes on, the work of the Spirit, a life of prayer, selfless love, separation from the world, spiritual growth to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus, obedience. What's the point here? Being born from above is the work of the Holy Spirit. Only He can produce these things. So, do you find them in your soul? Do you find them there? Without it, there's no evidence of being born from above. And finally, and very quickly, being born again is wholly the work of God because it's determined by God's free will. Verse 7. Do not marvel, Jesus says to Nicodemus, I said to you, you must be born again. He's saying to Nicodemus, Think about who you are, Nicodemus. As a human, as flesh, what do you honestly think you're going to do to give yourself place in my kingdom? If you think there's something you can do, Nicodemus, well, you have sorely underestimated who I am. A right view of me you understand, I'm helpless, I'm hopeless, I can't do anything. That's why Jesus, don't marvel about this, Nicodemus. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Don't be surprised. Could there possibly be another way that someone like you or you or me could find access to my holy kingdom? Oh, if you're marveling, if, this, if you're uncomfortable with this, you need to rethink me, Jesus says. And then he says in verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from, where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. What's he saying here? The work of God in the soul of man is completely the will of God. It's just, it's God's will. It's the will of the Spirit. How many of you today can predict which direction the wind's going to flow from? Can you just guess and go out there? You can't, can you? Or when it's going to blow? Or where it's going? Or how many of you can predict the miles per hour? How about when these hurricanes come through? I mean, they, they put these numbers on there, and they try to guess. But who can predict perfectly when, where, how fast the wind blows? Anybody? Why? Because we're not sovereign over it. There's mystery when it comes to the wind, and that's Jesus' point to Nicodemus here. We're uncomfortable with this, 
And if you're uncomfortable, you, you, you just got to go back to the text and you're going to have to wrestle with, all right, I may be uncomfortable, but thus saith the Lord. When it comes to the work of the Holy Spirit, there's mystery to how he operates. You can't predict who will be saved. You can't predict when they will be saved. A person may hear the gospel 50 times and on the 51st time, God, by grace, transforms the soul through the work of the Holy Spirit. Another person may hear it the very first time, and the work of the Holy Spirit transforms the soul. Another person may hear it 150 times, and yet never be saved. There's no formula. There's a reason why in our day today, and I know for some of the older generation, this may be a... There's a reason why churches today don't do... Revival meetings. I know in the old days, even when I was growing up, there was an annual revival you'd have come in. and Biblical revival is not a meeting that you set up. Revival is the work of God in the life of a soul. Revival is not something you put on a calendar. Revival is the work of the Spirit. There's no formula. There's no book you can read to guarantee salvation. There's no combination of lights and fog and music. And if we sing songs from a certain generation or if we have preaching that's of this kind, there's no formula for making salvation happen. Why? Because of what Jesus says here. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear it sound but you don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit alone who sovereignly saves. Which instead of discouraging us, if that's the reflex to hearing that, oh, beloved, <laughs> you've got your priorities inverted. <laughs> You're acting like salvation is owed to anybody. If that discourages you, rethink who God is. The proper response to verse 8 there is, praise God that anybody is saved. Praise God that he is kind and merciful and gracious to any. And if God has me here in this setting now, God, we look to you and we pray, we plead, we beg to do in us what only you can do. Now again, there's a third part to this series in John chapter 3, so we're having to cut it off here, kind of at a midpoint. But we've seen the necessity of being born again. We've seen the impossibility of being born again by your own effort. Only the Holy Spirit can save us. As He wishes, as He wills, in accordance with the Father's eternal purposes. It's He who gives us faith. It is He who gives us everything that we need. It's He who washes away our sins. This is a great time to take inventory. What is Jesus telling Nicodemus he needs to bring to the table in order to be born again? Do you see that? Do you see that in the text? Nothing. Nothing. For the glory of God, salvation is of the Lord. Beloved, this is the time for you to search your own heart.
we most likely are just like Nicodemus. We come to Jesus, we come here this morning with the expectation. I've got the heritage, I've got the experience, I've got the religious life, I'm, I'm a pretty good person, I'm reading Bunyan, I'm, I'm, I have a quiet time every once in a while, or maybe I don't, but, but hey, I profess faith in Jesus Christ, I believe Jesus died, He lived, He died, He rose again. I, I don't have to worry about these things, Jake. You're not the authority on being born again, nor am I. Jesus is. And what has Jesus just done with Nicodemus? What I hope he's doing with all of us. Let's just kick all that stuff out of here because it means nothing. Salvation is the work of God bringing you to him. Where is God in your affections?